Well, it's great to see you this morning. And I trust you have been encouraged through the book of Acts. Um, I remember in our group when I first said, are you excited about the book of Acts? I think there was a little bit of, oh, that's evangelism. You know, that's going to... If you want to uh, bring concern to anybody, just talk about evangelism or prayer, probably in those two areas. If you want a title for this morning's message, it's The Miracle in Troas. I wonder how how you would feel if you were recorded in Scripture for all time as a young man who fell asleep during a meeting. What a thing to be recorded for you. And more than that, more than just falling asleep, he was listening to the Apostle Paul. And not only did he fall asleep, he fell out of a window and he died. Eutychus was that young man who 2,000 years ago fell into a deep sleep and then fell from a third-story window. Fortunately, although the fall killed him, he was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit through the prayers of Paul. He probably wished that Dr. Luke, who was recording all this, was not there. I wish he hadn't have been there. In Acts 20, verses 1 to 12, we see this story. Maybe we might think that God appointed Luke to record this story so we could preach a sermon with the application of don't fall asleep during the sermon. We may think that's his purpose, but it certainly was, wasn't. When we look further into this passage, we can see other things that we that have been now canonised in Scripture that we can learn from. So I just want to talk simply three points this morning. Paul's commitment to team ministry, Paul's pattern for Sunday worship, and Paul's ministry to Eutychus. So would you turn to Acts chapter 20? We're going to read from verses 1 to 12. Referring to the uproar in in, in Ephesus, one of the problems we're getting a bit out of order, but never mind. Um, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through the, those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Tromphius, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days." On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with him a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away 
and they were not a little comforted. In verses 2 to 6, we get a brief insight into Paul's itinerary, a brief description of his itinerary. Paul leaves Ephesus and sails to Macedonia, where he visits the churches that he had planted that were now struggling. So both in Macedonia and then on to Greece, Paul's desire in his visits to these young churches was to encourage them. Paul's purpose in visiting these churches was to care for them by encouraging them and strengthening them. Wherever Paul went, he experienced his persecution. But always during these times of persecution, he endures these times with joy. And so he was there out of his own experience to encourage them through the word, these new churches, to endure persecution and hard sake for the sake of the gospel and to do it with joy. Matt and I, we mentioned earlier about our, our visit to Poland recently. We, we met pastors and wives who were experiencing persecution and hardship for the sake of the gospel. It was one of those times that you just, never want, you just didn't want to complain about anything. You, know. you listened to what they were going through. But even though they were going through hardship and persecution, there was much joy. That room was just filled with laughter. And I was looking across, sitting there and looking across these husbands, sometimes wives, and seeing that, not knowing what they were going through, but seeing the joy that they were experiencing. And that's what Paul wanted to bring to these new churches. Paul's intent was to go on to Corinth on his way to Jerusalem, where he was to deliver to the Jerusalem church a collection from the various churches. However, as we read here, he discovered a, there was a plot to throw him overboard while he was at sea. So instead, he travelled back through uh, Greece, to, through Macedonia, and crossed over the Dardanelles to Troas. And he arrived in Troas and was reuni reunited with these companions that we mentioned. These, these names are not always easy to read. He met these, these companions. They'd gone on ahead, and this was a joyful reunion. And although he had not intended to be in Troas for seven days, in the sovereignty of God, God had a purpose for him to be there. For seven days, all these men who travelled with Paul or went ahead with Paul were involved with him in team ministry. They weren't just meeting on a Sunday. They were involved, these seven men, during the week, teaching these new Christians in the homes. Paul saw the importance, right from the outset, if you look at his ministry, of team ministry. In the same way, he sees the importance of plurality of elders and pastors. Wherever Paul travelled for ministry, he was accompanied by these men, or Barnabas, or John Mark, Silas, Timothy and Luke, he always went with someone. He believed in team ministry. Paul did not do ministry alone. But not only these, these seven men ministered with Paul, these seven men were fruits of Paul's ministry. They came from Macedonia. They came, sorry, the, um, from Thess Thessalonica, from the Asians, these, these men, these men that he was now travelling with, 
represented his ministry. They were fruits of his ministry. One of the things that Paul was, was, was doing, he was preparing for a future that he would not see. Not that he would not see just because he was going to another place, but he would not see because he wouldn't live that long. But to see the future ministry of these men and the future of this, these churches. And that's the same for us. We believe here in team ministry at a local level. We believe it's right to have a plurality of elders. We believe it's right always to work in team. Matt and I come across and we meet with, with guys who are on their own in ministry. And they really value their times together. We value our times together, but in a slightly different way. They value because they don't get those times elsewhere. And there are many men in ministry who really are alone. But we believe in team ministry at a local level, but we also believe in team ministry in a wider team relationships. And that's why we're so excited, Matt and I, about our involvement as a church, not our involvement, our involvement as a church in establishing Sovereign Grace Europe. To see what God will do through a collection of churches who have the same values, the same understanding to build into Europe. And our desire is to train and develop leaders for a future that we may not see. May, may, Matt may see a bit more than me, but I'm not going to see so, so much. And we want to imitate the example of Paul and the early church. And one of the things I want to make clear, we are not as a church about innovation. <coughs> We're about imitation. Paul says, imitate me as of Christ. We want to imitate the early church. The example, the pattern, certain patterns that we see in the early church. Which brings me to my second point, Paul's pattern for Sunday worship. Paul was desiring to get to Jerusalem as quick as possible to deliver this collection, this, this money that had been made, taken up for the Jerusalem church. As I said earlier, in the sovereignty of God, he was delayed and his final day in Troas was to be on a Sunday. We turn to verse 7. We read, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. They're okay, we're not going to do that this morning. We're not going to go on for that long at all. But Luke, in this, just this one verse, gives us some principles for the church's primary, primary pattern in our service when we gather together as, as the church. We can learn a lot about Christian worship from that evening in Troas 2,000 years ago. But we need to be careful that Luke's account is descriptive and not prescriptive. In other words, Luke, by saying it here, is not suggesting that we meet on the third floor of a house and listen to sermons for many hours. Unfortunately, we don't have oil lamps, we have electricity. Also, the fact that he doesn't record prayers and singing hymns and reading scripture He's not saying these things shouldn't be part of our worship together. As we've reiterated right through our study of Acts, what we see is not necessarily normative, but we can glean some principles from the history and the Acts of the Apostles. But there does seem to be some principles of public worship in this text. They're also confirmed elsewhere in Scripture. The first thing is Sunday worship. 
The first thing we notice here, it was they met on the first day of the week. No doubt these believers met with one another as they were able during the week. A few meeting with one another here and there. But they all came together on the Lord's day. Verse 7 certainly reads as if the normal practice was being described. Indeed, in a very important sense, the impression is that life of the congregation together was centred on the Lord's day. It had been the tradition of the Jews, and it is still the tradition of the Jews today, to worship on the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath. But now in the New Testament, we find that the early Christians met on the first day of the week, the Sunday. Why was that? Well, the switch happened as a result of the resurrection of Christ on the first day. Christ rose on the first day. And that day was the Lord's day, and Sunday became known as the Lord's day. We often don't use that term. When I grew up in church years ago, we'd always refer to the Lord's Day. Now we just say it's Sunday. It is the Lord's Day. It's a day that as Christians, those who've been raised with Christ, get together to rehearse and rejoice in Christ's death and resurrection. John Newton describes Sunday or the Lord's Day as the best day of the week. It's the best day of the week. Is Sunday the best day of the week for you? Is it the best day of the week? Do you look forward to celebrating the gospel each Sunday with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you view the Lord's Day as a special day? Would it be obvious to those around you that you view the Lord's Day as special? Do you prepare for the Lord's Day? Do you stay up late? Do you know there's a party going on next door to us last night? It was, it was a riot. <laughs> I, I won't embarrass anybody here. Um, they know who they are. No, seriously, though. But, you know, staying up late on a Saturday night is not good preparation for coming in Sunday morning. Weary trudging in. Is that giving God the best? Is it the best day? Doesn't he deserve the best worship? Doesn't he deserve the best of us when we gather together? There is a place to do other things on a Sunday. I know June grew up in the Welsh Valleys where they said that, you know, if, you, if it was out of order to knit on a Sunday, you know, if you came home from the church, you shouldn't knit. And there were all those sort of things. Now, there are, there's a place to do other things on a Sunday. But when those things become more of a priority than meeting together, Something's not right. Something's not right. Parents, do your children see that Sunday is a priority for you and your family? What you model will affect them for years. Now, if you're a parent here, and those who can remember back to when they did parent children, did you notice that Sunday morning seemed to be the time that there seemed to be a lot of uh, aggro arguments, all sorts of problems that's, you know, get out in the week and it was fine, but come Sunday. Why do you think that is? Well, it's the enemy who wants to rob you. He wants to put you in a wrong frame of mind before you get here. And children can be uh, 
used extensively in that. But we need our children to see that Sunday is priority above all else. The first day of the week, gather to worship. Hebrews 10 verse 25 says, Not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some, but encourage one another. You know, we love our natural family, don't we? Or most of us do anyway. And we love being with them wherever, whenever possible. The same is true of the church family. And one of the things that the writer to Hebrews says, if we don't gather together, if we forsake the meeting together, we can't encourage each other. I remember being challenged many years ago by Jeff Purcell when he said, it's good to encourage one another, but do you come on a Sunday, do I come on a Sunday with an intention to encourage? I might encourage out of a situation that comes before me, but do I come with that purpose? And I'm still working on that. I don't want to suggest that I've got that sussed. Psalm 102 says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Were you glad this morning? Were you glad? Were you glad? We're here this morning following the example of the meeting in Troas, not innovating, but imitating. The second thing that we notice is they celebrated the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day. Scripture tells us that we do this in remembrance of Jesus until he returns. And this supper, this supper we use various terms, the Lord's Supper, breaking of bread, around the table, communion, if you're high church and whatever, you get into Eucharist and whatever. But it's the Lord's table, it's the Lord's supper, and we do it on the Lord's day. This supper belongs to Jesus. It belongs to him. It's his supper that he invites us to when we gather together to partake in remembrance of him until he returns. It reminds us of Christ's death on the cross. His death and resurrection are at the very centre of our salvation. And it's a consistent reminder of God's perfect justice that has been satisfied through Jesus Christ. His wrath has been exalted for all who believe and trust in the personal work of Jesus Christ. I love this, John Stott. The Lord's Supper, which was instituted by Jesus and which is the only regular commemorative act authorised by him, dramatises neither his birth nor his life, neither his words nor his works, but only his death. Nothing could indicate more clearly the central significance which Jesus attached to his death. It was his death that he wished above all else to be remembered. I believe then it's safe to say that there's no Christianity without the cross. There's no Christianity without the cross. People may say they're believers, but if they are not trusting in Jesus and his, the personal work of Jesus on the cross, then they are not Christians. It's not just see believing. Not saying, many people say, well, I believe Jesus existed. Yeah, we celebrate him at Easter and Christmas and stuff like that. But it's trusting. It's trusting in his personal work. It's trusting that he is the Christ. It's trusting that he is the Son of God. And it's trusting that he, 
on the cross, for all those who are trusting in this, he took our sins. And God's wrath that was due for us, due for us, was poured out on his son. He crushed his son. We reminded of us through Isaiah last week. He crushed his son. It was his will. Amazing. But for us. You know, if, if, just use your imagination a bit now, if when we get to heaven, Jesus, uh, Peter rather, is standing at the door. You know why we call Peter all the time and these things, but Peter's standing in the door and he says, on what basis should you enter in to heaven? Well, I went to church regularly. I did lots of things, and there's lots of good things. I was pretty moral. Yeah, I didn't, didn't kill anybody. Uh, you know, I was, I was pretty good. People around me would say I was a good person. You would not enter into heaven. Now, I'm using it figuratively because I don't think, or in this kind of imaginary situation, but if we say, I'm trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ, only trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ, come on in, come on in. It's one exam that if we did have an exam like that, we'd better get it right. You see, I believe, as I said, that the cross is central to our religion. And John Stott also writes, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. Do you see that this morning? We could sing the songs and, and we, we worship and thank God and we sing about the cross and what Christ accomplished on the cross. But before we see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. It was you and I that put Christ on the cross. It was our sins that put him there. And each time we break bread, we remember and are reminded of our Saviour's work on the cross on our behalf. The third thing we're going to look at is the sermon. A good proportion of time was given to the preaching of God's word, not suggesting it should be as long as Paul was preaching here. But from the very beginning of the early church, the priority in their meetings was the preaching of God's word. Luke, again, is not here suggesting that the length of Paul's teaching in Troas is to be the normal. But it does establish the principle that when the church gathers, preaching is to be the priority. The most important event in our Sunday worship is God's revelation of himself and his purpose, his eternal purposes through the preaching of the word. God's revelation of himself and his eternal purpose. Sadly, for many Christians, Sunday worship has lost its significance and some put away the preaching of the word. My old pastor used to say, you preach sermonettes, you get Christianettes. You know, if you, if you don't preach long sermons, you don't get fully mature Christians. Sadly, it's lost its significance. Some, some people are looking for entertainment on Sunday. Make sure you've got two or three good jokes in there and, you know, whatever. Well, let's have just five, ten minutes. Let's have a sermon in it. Montgomery boy said this. 
His word is what God has chosen to bless. And that is why in properly conducted Christian services we emphasise it. It is not the eloquence of the preacher or even his authority that blesses, but the word of God. And although in a moment we're going to look at the miracles surrounding Eutychus, for Paul that was not the most important thing that took place in that meeting. I know of friends, leaders who, who believe that if they had in their church some outstanding miracle, unbelievers would come to Christ. Paul didn't perform this miracle well. He didn't. The Holy Spirit did. He didn't perform it to win others to the church. He did it, as we'll see in a minute, out of his love and care for Eutychus. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21 says, For sin is the in the wisdom of God, the world did not, go, God, not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's through the preaching of the word that people will come to faith. It's not looking for some experience. It's not looking for some miracle that would happen. I wonder, I wonder if, if we had... A, I just thought about this as I'm saying. I wonder if we, in this meeting we had a miracle like Eutychus. Somebody on the back row, fell off their chair. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you need to be careful where you sit. But fell off their chair. The front rows are always the best rows. Well done. Um, and, and died. And then Matt and I prayed over them, and they came to life. Well, we rejoiced in that. Of course we would. But would that become the biggest thing that will grip our hearts that day? Some people sort of talk to me about experiences and, uh, and, and things that God does. And I say, yeah, great, wonderful, that's good. That doesn't surprise me because I know who my God is. I know what God is capable of. I know what he can do. It, I'm grateful that he did it. But when we look for experiences beyond the word, we're looking in the wrong place. The power of the gospel is not in manifestations, not in celebrity preachers, not in the presentation. It's in the word of God, God and the Holy Spirit bringing revelation. These folks in Troas were prepared to stay all night because they loved to hear the word of God being preached and being revealed, God revealing truth to them. And we often say, don't we, in this church, we, we love the word and we do. But it's the God that this book reveals is who we really love. We love the word because it tells us about the person or the God that we love. It tells us about our saviour, Jesus Christ. We, we worship not the book, but we worship the author. I wonder what sort of appetite do you have for hearing God's word preached? When you listen to the preacher, when you listen to the word, do you rate the preacher or the presentation or do you listen as though being preached by frown men? Although being preached by frown men, do you listen, recognising God being proclaimed and therefore enabling us to encounter God through the preaching of his word? Jerry Packer says the proper aim of preaching is to mediate meetings with God. 
These folks were listening intently, and while they were listening, in the evening with the oil lamps glowing, it was an evening service, we come to the miracle of Eutychus. This meeting probably started around 7, and it was going on, we know, went on to the next morning. But I think he stopped preaching around 12. So we're going to look at Paul's ministry to Eutychus. Let's read verses 9 and 10 again. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. You know, I'm glad that this story is found in Scripture. Because if somebody could fall asleep under Paul's ministry, I'm not surprised if they fall asleep when I'm speaking. We read that this young boy, Eutychus, was just probably aged between 8 and 14. And he unwisely positioned himself as he was listening on a window ledge three stories high. You know, it's important where we sit. It is important where we sit. We could either sit to really draw in or we could sit to sit out. That's why I think all the anointings at the front I keep telling that. In that room, the oil lamps were on. There was no air conditioning. It was hot. Paul was preaching a prolonged sermon. Not surprising that he fell asleep. It's not surprising when you fall asleep, certain people more than others. Uh, when I speak, or Matt speaks, well, probably not so much in Matt, but certainly when I do. It's not uncommon to look over a congregation and see people resting their eyes <laughs> or claiming afterwards, oh, I was in deep prayer for you, brother. <laughs> I read of an elder who fell asleep in a service and when his wife nudged him to wake up, he immediately stood up and pronounced the benediction. I was at a pastor's retreat many years ago, so not to do with Sovereign Grace, and we had a guest speaker for the day. And in the afternoon session, the person who was leading the meeting at the front, and we could all see it, kept dozing off. And every time he came around, he said, Amen. Not in the most appropriate times. Luke here is not recording this to take the opportunity to criticize the young man. And that's true of us today. There are many reasons why we could, we could fall asleep. Coming off a night shift. Challenges with young children. Not getting a good night's sleep. Many things that can challenge us. But what would concern Luke, and it would concern me, is not when our bodies are asleep, but our souls. When our souls are asleep. Martin Luther had this dream, and... It's a dream, all right? So it's not factual. But he had this dream. It's about the devil sitting upon his throne, listening to his agents, reporting on the progress they had made in opposing the gospel and destroying the souls of men. And one said to Satan, there was a company of Christians crossing the desert. I loosed all these lions on them and they, they were all killed. What of that, Satan answered. The lions destroyed their bodies, but their souls were saved. Another reported, there was a company of Christian pilgrims sailing the sea. 
I sent a great wind against the ship and the ship was driven on the rocks and all the Christians were drowned. What of that, said Satan. Their bodies were drowned at sea, but their souls were saved. The third came forward and gave his report and said, for 10 years I have been trying to cast a Christian into a deep sleep and at last I have succeeded. And with that, the corridors of hell rang with shouts of triumph. Perhaps a more insignificant thing, but getting the Christian into a deep sleep was not helping that person with their soul. Martin Luther says this, Let us consider it certain and conclusively established that the soul can do without all things except the word of God, and, when, and that when that is not there, where there is not help for the soul in anything else whatsoever. Bit of a funny sentence, that. But if it has the word, it is rich and lacks nothing. Since this word is the word of life, of light, of peace, of righteousness, of salvation, of joy, of liberty, of wisdom, of power, of grace, of glory, and of every blessing beyond our power to estimate. It's important that our souls are awake. It's important that our souls are fed. So let's get back to our story. What happened to Eutychus when he fell asleep? He fell out the window three stories high and died. It was interesting to note what Paul did. Did he carry on preaching and just leave others to sort it out? The family, family no doubt were there. He was a young, young lad. Others go and care for Eutychus and his distraught family. Now Paul's love not only for the church as a gathered community, was seen in his love for the individual, his care and love for Eutychus. He stopped preaching and immediately went down to see him. I know of a preacher who once knocked over the flower presentation at the front of the church while he was preaching. And while he was preaching, without stopping in his sermon, started picking up the flowers one by one. Bit unreal you know, walking around the front while he's preaching. Paul lived in the real world. And his preaching came from a love for the church and his love for people. So he stopped, he went down, he bent over him and taking him in his arms said to those around, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And Luke was the one who recorded this event, was a doctor. And so in proclaiming him dead, he would know. I'm sure that the congregation was... Amazed, they were amazed, they were thrilled. Full of joy for Eutychus and his parents, but also for themselves. Here was the proof, if proof were needed, that the gospel had, they had embraced for themselves was truly the power of God. Well, what did this congregation do? We might have thought that having witnessed the miracle, there would be further no need for a sermon. Wow, we've just seen this event happen before our eyes. But they went back upstairs, partake, took in the Lord's Supper, and for the continuation of Paul's sermon. I kind of feel Paul will go back upstairs and probably say to them all, Now, where was I? Where did I get to? Before Eutychus interrupted us. Where did I come to? What was the point I was making? These people, 
now broke bread. And it says that Paul, Paul continued to talk with them until daybreak. He finished the sermon, but they were still talking to him. You know, there are people in the Christian church today who are more interested in experiences than hearing from the word of God. It is the nourishment of God's word that will maintain your joy in Christ, not experiences. There are people chasing experiences and it's an insatiable thirst. It's the word living in, in our hearts, in our minds, encouraging our souls, nourishing us. For Paul, the care of Eutychus through a miracle was important. But it was the feeding of these Christian souls that was more important to him. Verse 12 tells us that they took the youth away, Eutychus away alive, and were not a little comforted. I'm sure Eutychus' family was comforted. But I think Luke was also saying that Paul's purpose in encouraging and strengthening these early Christians was what comforted them. The church in Troas, was comforted through team ministry, the, the preaching of the word of God, the power of the word being displayed in healing. And I think the example of Paul and his loving care for the individual. And although we don't have Paul's preaching and we haven't experienced a miracle like the Eutychus, today we're just ordinary people who know that the gospel is true, that Christ is our Lord and Saviour, and who can build our lives daily on these glorious truths and come to church each Lord's Day to be renewed, to be renewed in that confidence. We come on Sunday, we go out into a world that will, will try and take us and influence us in our values and life, totally opposed to God's word. So we come back. I, I'm just thinking of Martin Luther says, I preach justification by faith every week because I need to hear justification by faith every week. These, the old, old story, these old truths, we need to constantly hear them. It's not, when can we hear something new? No, we want to hear something old. As I said, it's not in innovation, but it's imitation. So this morning, as we gather together as brothers and sisters, as we converse with each other over tea and coffee, we've sung songs, glorious songs. We're going to sing some more. Let's go home freshly encouraged, rejoicing in the comfort of our Lord through our time together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you that in your sovereignty you planned for this, this to be in your holy book for purpose. Father, help us to embrace the purpose of this passage this morning. And Father, I want to thank you. And I know Matt joins with me in this. Thank you that for you folks. Thank you for each member of the church here, the church family who desire 
to gather together, who have a love for you, who do love your word, who more importantly love you. Sunday is the best day. And Spurgeon got it right when he said, the church is the dearest place on earth. Father, thank you that you've brought us into a church family. You've saved us, you've redeemed us, you've, you've set us free from the penalty of sin. No longer to experience your wrath. <coughs> and we come each week to celebrate this glorious gospel and to rejoice in it. So Father, give us grace, much grace, so that each week, Sunday, will be the best day.